Amen. Good to be with you this morning, church. So thankful to the Lord for his mercy and grace in our lives that we can gather like this to sing his praise, to hear his word, to encourage each other in him. Oh, how we need it. Well, if you want to grab your Bible with me and open up to the book of Genesis. Uh, And if you're new to this church, you're new to the Bible, you came on a good day, because here's the deal. Genesis is found on page one. Real easy to find. Uh, We begin a a new study as a church family in the book of Genesis. We're going to hopefully work our way through this book together. And so as we do, before we consider his word together, let's pause once more, ask God for his help as we hear his word. Let's pray. Father, we pause because we recognize that your word is unlike any other word in all of life. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we, we recognize that your word is truth. It is not a truth. It is the truth. And so, Father, we pray that you would sanctify us now by your truth. Help us to understand what we read Open our eyes, we pray, to behold your beauty, your glory. We pray that your Holy Spirit would create in us that which needs to be created, that you would remove from us that which needs to be removed, that we might hear your word of soft hearts and obedient hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the Old Testament, and if you're, again, if you're new to the Bible, the, the Bible is broken up into two parts. You have the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, or the New Covenant. And in the Old Testament, God's people were delivered from 400 years of living in, in slavery in Egypt. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. And their journey to the land that God had promised them, he promised them a land. That journey from Egypt to the promised land was awesome, but it wasn't problem-free. It wasn't like they got out of Egypt after the 10 plagues, the showdown with the Egyptian gods, and they kind of coast off into the sunset problem-free. As you read about this journey, you see that they faced problems along the way to the promised land. For instance, right after they left Egypt, they were trapped. At one point, they were trapped by an impassable Red Sea on one side and a bloodthirsty Egyptian army coming to ruin them on the other side. And it looked like there was no way out. And so where would the people of God turn in their distress? Well, Exodus 14 tells us they wanted to go back to Egypt. This ain't working. Let's go back. But in the last second, amazingly, God parts the Red Sea and delivers them as they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. As you keep reading of this story of their way to the promised land, when they arrive to the entry doors of the promised land at the Jordan River, they send 12 spies into the land to check out the land, and they find, upon going into the land, that the land was exactly as God had said. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a prosperous land. It was It was paradise. The only problem was that the land was not empty. There was people living there. And they stood in the way of God's people coming in to take the promised land. And the spies reported to the rest of the people. They said, oh my goodness, the people living in the land are huge. They're so huge. They make us feel like grasshoppers. 
which are about to be squashed. And so once again, where did God's people turn in their distress? Let's go back to Egypt. Fear made it seem in that moment that it would be better to go back to slavery that God had set them free from rather than taking their chances and trusting God. So one of the questions that we see in the Old Testament is, is how would a people who are crippled by fear and are overwhelmed by discouragement, how is it that they will move from fear to faith? God gave them Genesis. God gave them his word in the book of Genesis. A little bit of an introduction. Genesis is the first of the five books of the Bible. And the first five books of the Bible are formally known as the Pentateuch. You can hear the, the Penta, the five, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books known as the Pentateuch are actually meant to be read together. It'll actually help us to keep that in mind as we read bits and pieces in Genesis, that Genesis is actually meant to be read with the whole of the Pentateuch. We know that Moses is the human author who wrote Genesis, as well as the whole Pentateuch. Jesus himself affirms that in the New Testament. And it seems likely that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, including the book of Genesis, while Israel was wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. They had a lot of, he had a lot of time on his hands. Uh, of wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. And they were wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief, their refusal to trust God. Now, the title Genesis is just a word that means beginning or origin. It comes from the Greek translation of uh, this word that means origin or beginning. And it's called Genesis not because it's just the first book of the Bible, though it is. It's rather called Genesis because it's a book about beginnings. In Genesis, we're gonna see the origin of, of the universe, of the people of God, about sexuality, or marriage, or family, or government, and the beginning of so much more as Moses writes for us this book of Genesis. And in showing us the beginning, we are meant to meet the God who has no beginning. He isn't a God who came to be. He's the God who is the I am. And so friends, amidst roadblocks and discouragements and confusion and fear, Israel, as God's people in the Old Testament, what they needed more than anything else was to see their God. That their God was the one who created all things, sustains all things, and rules sovereignly over all things. Because in realizing how big their God is, Israel would see that they were not the grasshopper to be squashed. The grasshopper was anything that stood in the way of what God had promised them, if they would only trust and obey. Talk about encouraging. Genesis is a book of comfort for the people of God. Is it, a book of, it is a book of encouragement for the people of God because it shows us God. Now church, you may not be trapped by a literal Red Sea today. I recognize that. But I know there are frustrations and trials and disappointments that tempt each of us to fear 
into anxiety and to despair. And just as the Old Testament people of God needed the encouragement that Genesis had to offer, friends, the people of God today, the church, need the encouragement and the instruction of Genesis. And so we turn our attention today to God's word in the book of Genesis. Let's start with the text, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit into which there was seed, in which there is seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for the signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning and the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. We'll pause there. 
Now, I think before we jump into the, the details of the text, we need to kind of set some things in order because I think for many of us, there are at least parts of Genesis 1 that are very familiar to us. We've heard them quoted before, we've read them before, we've, we're familiar with certain phrases. And so when it comes to familiar passages like that for us, it's easy for us to come to the text this morning with thoughts and opinions from current debates that we've heard or current debates that we care about or current debates that we're a part of. What about religion and science? How old is the earth? Is it young or is it old? What about dinosaurs? Is it a literal 24-day or is it metaphorical? What about Darwinian evolution? Now, and there are many other questions we could ask like that. And, and I want to say from up front, these questions are important. They are questions that are good for you and I to ask. So we should ask those questions, but... As we come to God's word, we need to remember that an important principle in interpreting and understanding our Bible is that we must start with observation. In other words, when you come to the Bible, always start with observation. First of all, listen to what the text says before you come to any conclusion. Don't interrupt God. If someone interrupts you, when you're trying to tell somebody something and they interrupt you because they assume they know what you're talking about before you finish your sentence or your paragraph, how do you feel? If that's how you feel, don't interrupt God when you read his word. Before we pepper the text with questions, we must understand why the text was written. Why did God give us Genesis? Why did Moses, what was his intention? What was he thinking when he wrote this? How did the original audience hear this? Because I don't think that Moses was thinking about fossil records when he wrote Genesis. I don't think that Moses was thinking about Darwinian evolution when he wrote this. Again, it's not to say that, 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 that Genesis has nothing to say about those conversations. It has a lot to say about those conversations. But to avoid twisting God's word or making the Bible say something that God is not, friends, we as a church must be careful to listen to the text first before we make any conclusions. You got me? All right. With that in mind, let me just say this. The focus of Genesis 1 is not specifically on how God created, but that he created. That's the focus. The focus is not on the creation itself. The focus of Genesis 1 is on the creator. That's the focus of Genesis 1. And so we can state the big idea of Genesis 1, 1 through 25, we can state the big idea this way. God alone is the creator of all things. Therefore, God alone is worthy of worship. Let me say that one more time. Big idea, Genesis 1, 1, 25. God alone is the creator of all things. Therefore, God alone is worthy of worship. Now, that big idea of our text can be broken into two parts. And those two parts will be the two points of the sermon this morning. So it shouldn't be that, that hard, right? So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. God alone is the creator of all things. And we're going to see that in verse 1. God alone is the creator of all things. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created. 
the heavens and the earth. It is hard for us to overstate the importance of Genesis 1.1. It's a really important text for us. So let's try to look at it in the different parts of it. First of all, when, when Moses writes the heavens and the earth, when he combines those two words, it's actually, they're actually meant to go together. The two words heaven and earth are a literary tool in the text known as a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. A merism takes two opposite words or two extremes and puts them together to, to say it's not this or that. It's not that extreme or the other extreme. It's the totality of it. So from start to finish, from top to bottom, from A to Z, when we say merisms like that, we mean not just A or Z, but everything in between. So when a husband and wife, when they marry each other and they make their vows to each other before God and the witnesses and they promise to love each other in riches and in poverty, that's a merism. They're promising to love each other not just when they're rich, not just when they're poor, but whether they're rich or whether they're poor or anything in between, the whole thing. So when, God, when we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, the point is God created everything, everything. The distant galaxies that we don't even see, we can't even see with the strongest telescope, the sun which warms the earth, the walrus which comes up out of the water, the butterfly which floats through the air, the little atom that we, 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 we can only look at through the strongest of microscopes, everything in this universe, no matter how big or small, no matter how close it is or how distant to us, owes its existence to God. That's what heavens and earth means. God created the universe. And he created all things, we're told, in the beginning. That's a, a term in the Hebrew language that, that refers to an indeterminate, unspecified period of time. We, we're, we're not told how, how many minutes or days or years that is. It's, it's just an indeterminate period of time. But by saying in the beginning, he's marking the beginning. And, and the point is, is that we see that everything in creation, everything in this universe has a beginning. When God created the universe in 1-1, he created it from nothing. That's hard to wrap our minds around, but that's the truth. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The point is, is that at one point in time, creation, the universe, all living things, all matter, was not. And then God called it into existence. And what was once not became. You have a birthday, I have a birthday, we all have a birthday, we all have a beginning. And everything in creation also has a birthday, a beginning. But not God. Genesis 1 1 teaches us that before the beginning, even when the universe was not, God was. The biblical God, the God of the Bible, 
is the eternal God. He always has been. He always will be. He is the eternal God. Even as we sang earlier, we, we sang he, God, the uncreated one. That's what we're singing about. That's what we're praising God about. And I understand that when you, when you try to think about God always existing in eternity past, when you, when you try to wrap, when we as finite beings try to wrap our mind around the idea of eternity, it's mind-boggling. It gives you a headache. But this is who God reveals himself to us to be. He is the eternal God who created all things. And because he created all things, that means he stands above all things, as the center of all things, in authority over all things. God was not obligated to create the universe. Creation was an act of grace, an act of sovereign grace. Therefore, all things owe their existence to him, and with him as the center, God is the focal point. He is in the spotlight. He is the focus. He is the point of the universe. This is why Paul said in Romans eleven thirty six, from him and through him and to him are all things. So what, Paul? Well, to him then be all glory forever. Amen. Amen. Friends, again, it is hard for us to overstate the importance of Genesis 1, 1. It is the foundation for everything else that comes in the Bible. Everything else in the Bible builds upon, in the beginning, God. If in the beginning there is no God, the rest of the Bible falls apart. But if it's true, if it's true that in the beginning God, everything else in the Bible builds upon that theological truth. So we're told not only that he, did he create all things, not only did he do it in the beginning, we're also told about the identity of the creator. It's God. And the biblical word, the Hebrew word, if you're new to the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word there for God is Elohim. It's a word or a title for God that shows that he is the sovereign creator. Elohim points to the fact that he is the ruler who is in control of the entire universe. That's, that's the God of chapter 1, verse 1. But here's what's interesting. As you read 1, 1 in the rest of, of the context of, of the creation story, skip down to the end of the creation account in chapter 2, verse 4. Next page there. There, God is not identified as Elohim. In chapter 2, verse 4, he is identified in the day that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God, made the earth and the heavens. When you see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, that is a, that's the, the writer's way of, of signifying that that's Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. That's the covenant name of God. In other words, that's the special name for God who has made a covenant with his people, Israel, and he's saying, I am your God. You are my people. I'm in a covenant relationship with you. So when God made a covenant with Abraham, it is Yahweh who makes a covenant with Abraham. When, when God delivers his people from Egypt, it's Yahweh who delivers his people, his special people from Egypt. So here's the point. When, when the beginning of the creation account begins with Elohim and then it ends in 2-4 with Yahweh, Moses is doing that intentionally, I think. He's, he's showing the Israelites who are wandering around in the wilderness, who are scaredy cats of the, the Canaanites, who felt like they were grasshoppers. He's saying, listen, guys. Your God, our God, our Yahweh God, 
that we're in covenant relationship with is also Elohim. The God who's promised to give us his land, who be our God, is Elohim. Our covenant God is the creator God, the one who created the world. Now, I think in making this connection for them, Moses is making a distinction that their God, Yahweh, or Elohim, he's contrasting their God, our God, with the gods of Egypt, or the gods of the nations that the biblical authors refer to as mere idols. They're not really gods, they're just idols. The idols that the nations trust did not create anything. (laughs) They are created by human beings. But their God, our God, the biblical God, he alone created the heavens and the earth. So he is to be trusted. For this reason, if you go to Psalm 96 verse 5, it states, All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But, in contrast, the Lord made the heavens. Friends, do you see what this meant for Israel, who was paralyzed by fear? They were so discouraged. They were so anxious about the the obstacles in front of them that made them feel like small little bugs about to be squashed. They were so overwhelmed, so in distress, that they wanted to throw in the towel, stop trusting God, go back to Egypt. At least they had food there. They wanted to trust something other than Elohim, the creator God, Yahweh, their covenant God. Their problem seemed so big, and their God seemed so small. So Moses comes to them with the truth in the creation account in Genesis 1, 1, and says, hold up, hold up. Your God's too small. Your vision of God is so limited. It's not right. Let me remind you who your God is. Your God who promised you this land, your God who promised or commanded you to take it, is the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's got you. He's in control. He's sovereign. He is not threatened by anything. So don't trust yourself. Don't trust the idols of this nation. They're worthless. Trust God. He created the heavens and the earth. Israel, I know this is scary. I know they seem big, but he's got you. And friends, this was true for Israel thousands of years before today, but it's also true today for the church, for the people of God in the new covenant. This is what we read about earlier in Psalm 121 when Mike began uh, the service. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills Where does my help come from? I'm in trouble. I need help. Where does my help come from? And then he realizes, oh, wait a minute. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then he's like, okay, we're good. We're good. Church, no matter what trial you're facing today at work, in your family, with your health or in your body, with your friends, with your future, whatever problem, trial, thing you're facing today, Trust in God. Your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do not let your response to the trials that you face today or tomorrow be defined by your estimation of how big that problem is. That's not how Christians gauge things. 
Let your response be shaped by how big your God is. That's how Christians respond to their problems. Friends, our God is the God of the Bible. Our God is the God of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. He's big. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the ruler of all things. That's what we stated we, we believe as a church, even when we recited the Apostles' Creed earlier. That's what we sang about this morning. So, that's good. It's good that God is big, that he's the creator. But it leaves us with a follow-up question. As big as God is, as powerful as he is, as sovereign as he is, if this God in Genesis 1-1 is not good, we won't trust him. It doesn't matter how big or how insovereign he is. If he's not good, I don't want to trust him. So how can we know that this big God of Genesis 1-1 is also trustworthy? How can we know that he is good? Because when we're left waiting and we're hurting, and we are often left waiting in a fallen world when we are hurting, how can we know that God actually wants to help us? If you're waiting today and and you're waiting for God's help, it might be tempting to think that God doesn't want to help you. That he's not good. So how in that moment of trial and pain and waiting can you know today that he is good, that he is trustworthy? Well, even though God created all things, in chapter 1, verse 1, creation wasn't finished. God still needed to prepare a place for Adam and Eve, his people, which he would create on the sixth day, to dwell And so in preparing the land for Adam and Eve, we see point number two. Point number two, that God alone is worthy of worship. As we see God prepare the land for his people, point number two, God alone is worthy of worship. And we see God preparing this land for his people in chapter one, verses two through 25. Look again at verse two with me. Verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God had created the universe, but we're told that the land that God intended to put Adam and Eve once he created them was not suitable for them to live in yet. That's the sense of, of what is meant by without form and void. When you see without form and void in the way that that phrase is used later on in the Old Testament, we're meant to imagine a place that is uninhabitable for human beings. And the land that God had for his people is uninhabitable, we see in verse two, because it's so deep underwater that it's therefore covered with darkness. The light cannot get to it. So listen, if you're thinking about buying a home, Raising a family, working a job, place to live. <laughs> That's not a good place to live. So deep underwater, you, there is no light. It's not habitable. But here's the good news. Verse two ends with the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. The work that God was about to do in preparing the land for Adam and Eve 
a place, to create a place that, would, that they could flourish in and live and thrive was a work, we are told, that the Spirit of God would do. It's amazing. So what instrument would God use to accomplish this work? If the Spirit of God is gonna do this, what instrument is he gonna pick up to use to prepare the land for his people? Well, the instrument he picks up is the instrument of God's word. Previously, darkness had made the land uninhabitable for Adam and Eve, and God speaks in verse three, saying, look at verse three, and God said, let there be light. Now watch this, and there was light. Listen, when you talk, does stuff like that happen? Uh Uh-uh, you know why? Because you're not God. But when God speaks, stuff happens. Nothing gets in the way of what God wants to do. When God speaks, it happens. At his command, the light breaks through the darkness. As in John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We see the power of God's word in verse three. And in Genesis one then repeats this idea over and over that when God speaks, it happens. Verse three, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse six, God said, let there be an expanse. It's another way of saying, let there be the sky. And it was so. Verse nine, God said, let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, God said, here's his word, let the earth the land sprout vegetation, and it was so. As you read through the six days here in in Genesis 1, verses 2 through 25, we can kind of organize them this way. Days 1 through 3 form one group, and then days 4 through 6 form a second group, and they have a, actually, the two groups kind of are, are corollaries to each other. So on days 1 through 3, God's word orders the light, then fills the sky with birds, or sorry, days one, sorry, let me say that again. Days, days one through three, God orders the light, the sky, the sea, the land, and the vegetation. So he takes the land, this area that was uninhabitable, and he gets the, the area ready. And then in days four through six, God then declares the purpose for the light. Then he fills the sky where Adam and Eve will be put with birds, with the, he fills the sea with fish, and he makes and on the land, he creates animals. Now, we pause at verse 25. We're going to stop there today. And we also know that on day six, that human beings are also created on day six. But we're going to talk about that more carefully and in focus next week. So we'll pick, it up, we'll pick up the story next week in verse 26. But in all of this, I think one of the things that we're meant to see in this creation account is the authority and the power of God's word. When God speaks, stuff happens. And that's a reason to praise God. God, listen, God is not a God of disorder. And here, God's word creates an orderly, beautiful paradise for Adam and Eve to live in. The creation itself testifies that that there's a designer, right? So if, if somebody travels to South Dakota today and they go to Mount Rushmore 
and they said, wow, man, isn't it amazing that over millions of years, rain eroded this mountain so that it now looks like there's four U.S. presidents? Isn't it amazing that this just happened by chance? If they said that, we would laugh at them and say, don't be silly. Why would we say that? Why would we think of them as silly? Because the detail of the four U.S. presidents on the side of the mountain demands a designer. We all intuitively know that. That's why we think of them as silly for saying that it would just happen by chance. And the same is true of creation, friends. The complex DNA structures in your human body, the constants in our laws of physics, that gravity does not one way one day and different the next day, the Earth's position in the solar system, that it's just the right place not too hot, not too cold, not too, le- too much sun, not too less sun. Uh, just, so, just enough, the right place to sustain life. The reality of human consciousness and this ingrained sense of right and wrong in our conscience. The order and the beauty that we see in this universe. Friends, it is best explained by verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, there's this designer. His name is Elohim. He's God, and he created the heavens and the earth. This order, this beauty, this this complexity that we see in this universe did not come about by Darwinian evolution, by mere chance and accident and random things. No, it it points to the the fact that there is an intelligent designer. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare... The glory of God in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When you look out the stars, when you look out at creation, when you look at the complexities of the human body, they're shouting, there is a God! Look at his glory! God's word created that order. And he created that order powerfully by his word. God's word is authoritative and powerful. Friends, there's a lot of implications that it has for us, but let me just ask you this. Do you feel like your life is in ruins and in shambles today because of your sin or because of the sin that was committed against you? Would you say that your identity, the way that you see yourself is marred by darkness? When you look in the mirror, you see darkness and sin and you don't like what you see. Do the circumstances of your life today feel so unbearable that you'd even say life feels uninhabitable. Friends, Genesis 1 reminds us that God's word has the power and the authority to take an uninhabitable situation and to recreate it and to make it one in which you can flourish and live and really live If God authoritatively speaks creation into existence out of nothing, if God's word orders the the world so that it's habitable for human beings, his word has the power to reorder your broken world, no matter how it got broken. He can make you whole again. So, church, read his word. Listen to his word. Gather together like you are right now to hear his word taught and sung and prayed. Submit every bit of your heart and your life 
to his life-giving, authoritative word. And not only for yourself, but then look outward. Live your life in this world as a life of obedience to God's word. Live your life of obedience so that the broken world can see how God does that and how he does make us new creations. And then share his life-giving, authoritative, powerful, good word with others who need the same hope that we need. Because his word is powerful. There is no such thing as an, a hopeless situation when you, when you meet it with God's word. God's word is authoritative and powerful. But God's word is also good. That's another thing that we can observe from this text this morning. After God said, let there be light. And, it, and, it, and there was light. Notice in verse four, God evaluates it. Verse four, God saw that the light was good. So just as God spoke, God spoke, God said, God said is repeated, this idea of God seeing something and declaring it good is also repeated in Genesis 1. After God made the dry land appear, verse 10, God saw that it was good. When he commanded the land to produce vegetation, verse 12, God saw that it was good. After God gave the sun and the moon and the stars their purpose, verse 18, God saw that it was good. When God created the animals for the land, verse 21, God saw that it was good. God is creating, in Genesis 1, a good creation. He is ordering the land in a good way. Now, God seeing something as good may be like him stepping back from his creation and like an, like an artist steps back and looks at his or her painting and just appreciates and says, that's good, that's really good. That, may, that might be part of what God is doing. He's stepping back and saying, my handiwork is good. And that ain't bragging, that's just the truth. When God, when God makes something, he makes it good. He doesn't mess up. But I also think, not only is he stepping back and, and, and enjoying the beauty and the, 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 the goodness of his creation, admiring his handiwork, I also think the goodness of his creation is, is, is pointing to the fact that he is preparing the land for his people. God is doing what is good, what is beneficial for humankind. That's part of what he's up to here. As one writer notes, throughout this chapter, God is depicted as the one who both knows what is good for man and is intent on providing good for him. Let me say that one more time. Throughout this chapter, God is depicted as the one who knows what is good for man and is intent on providing good for him. One of the ways that we can know from this text that God is intent, when you look at his heart, his heart is to provide you for good. How do we know that? One of the ways we can know that from this text is by looking at the reason or the purpose for his creating the universe in the first place. Okay? So let's look at that. In verse 1, God, the, the, the name for God, Elohim, you can't necessarily say it in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's in the plural. God, in the plural, created the heavens and the earth. Now, I will say up front that that's not necessarily a slam dunk argument for the doctrine of the Trinity. There, are, there, is, a, there is such a thing as the plural of the majesty, just showing the, the majesty of God in the plural form. But as we keep reading through Genesis, we will see the Trinity come into focus. 
So after God the Father shows up in verse 1, then in verse 2, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So we have the Father, and then we have the Spirit. And then in verse 3, God said. We see God's word, and then creation is ordered as he speaks his, his authoritative word. Now, what, is that, what does his word have to do with the Trinity? Well, when we fast forward to the New Testament in the Gospel of John, John starts his gospel this way, John 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the echo. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, we just finished John's Gospel as a church. Who is the Word in John 1, 1 through 3? Jesus. Jesus is both God, and he is with the Father, and he is, we're told in John 1, 3, the, the one through whom God created all things. There is not anything that is made that was not made by him. So Jesus, then, is God's word through which God speaks creation into existence and orders the land for his people. In Genesis 1, God is revealing himself as the one God. We worship one God. We are a monotheistic religion. We worship one God. But God is revealing himself to us as one God who exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point you might be asking, okay, I thought we were thinking about the purpose of creation. What does the Trinity have to do with the purpose of God creating the earth? Well, hang in there with me. For all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have loved and enjoyed and delighted in one another. As God reveals himself to us, the, the, the point is, is that God, within God, there is a community that's always known rich, satisfying love. Each person in the Trinity oriented not on self, but on the other, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, if we, as we see God, God revealing himself in the, in the Trinity, if we could step into the fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, you would come in contact with infinite joy. Because within God, God is not, within God is infinite joy. Because when the Father interacts with the Son, the Son interacts with the Spirit, they see perfection of beauty. They delight in each other. There's, there's love. There's, there's infinite joy. So when we, if we could somehow step into that relationship, we would experience infinite joy. Everything that we are, our hearts long for every day is found within God. If you could step into the Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, you'd find heaven. You'd find paradise. So why did God create the universe? He didn't have to. There was nothing that demanded that he create anything. God did not create the universe because he was bored. God did not create the universe because he was lonely. He wasn't. There was no deficiency within himself that, that compelled him to create anything. There is no deficiency because he's a perfect, complete, content God. God, therefore, did not create to get joy. He already had it. God created to give infinite joy 
to those that he creates. All of creation exists for us to see and to treasure the glory of God. We exist to enjoy God, to glorify him, to enjoy his goodness, to enjoy a God who is intent on providing us good. And our best good, by the way, is to know him and to enjoy him. To rejoice in his good rule over our lives. But at this point, someone might object and say, hold on. Who is he to tell me what is good? Who's he to tell me what's right and wrong? The answer that Genesis 1 gives is, he's your creator. And as your creator, he has every right to tell you what is good. He has every right to tell you what is right and wrong. He alone is the standard by which right and wrong is determined. Genesis begins with the foundational truth. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from there, friends, as we keep reading Genesis, from there, from the reality of God, Genesis will go on to show us other beginnings, other, other designs. Genesis is gonna show us God's good design for personhood and identity and gender and sexuality and marriage and family. Do you think we today need to know what God says about those things? Do you think those things are being debated in, 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 in culture today? You bet they are. And the world is lying to us about how we should think about ourself, how we should think about gender, how we should think about personhood, how we should think about sex, how we should think about marriage, how we should think about government, how we should think about all many other things. So Genesis goes back to the beginning and says, let's go back to the start. Let's hit the reset button, go back to the start and see what God said from the very beginning, what his design is, because what he says is our creator is what's right and good. Okay, says the objection. I got it, I see your logic, but okay, but, but how do I know that God exists? Because if God doesn't exist, then all your argument just falls apart. Here's the deal. Genesis does not set out to prove the existence of God. Genesis assumes it. It doesn't start out in Genesis 1 and say, let me, let me show you and argue with you and give you a postulate about why you can know that the God exists. It just says in verse 1, in the beginning, God! That's the reality. That's the truth. We're assuming that reality. Listen, we weren't there when the universe was created. And guess what? No one was except God. Therefore, the only one who has the right to provide a reliable account of what happened in the origin of the, of the universe is God himself. And God's word is his revelation. It's his word to us. Every claim, whether atheistic or religious, every claim about the origin of the universe is a faith claim. Even the scientific claim about the origin of the universe is a faith claim because no one was there except God. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul explains that we are all without excuse. Why? Because God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. God is not hiding himself. 
they have been clearly perceived. How? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God is not hiding himself. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They are his handiwork. Romans 1 says, God is not hiding himself. He's showing us himself in general revelation. When you look at a creation, when you look at the complexities of the body, God is showing us that there's a designer. Again, given the fact that there is order and beauty in the universe, given the fact that there is the existence of life, given our, 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 our inherent moral sense and so many other things like that, it actually takes more faith to believe that all this happened, all this order and life and beauty happened by accident, by probability, by random particles just bumping into each other and then, this is what we've got. It takes more faith to believe that than to see that all this order and beauty and consciousness comes from an intelligent designer. The burden of proof is not on us. The burden of proof is on the one who denies that in the beginning, God. Because all the evidence points to the fact that there is a designer. There is a creator. Now, because I don't think this is the main point of the text, I don't want to spend too much time on there, but I do want to highlight a book. If you want to think more about this, Douglas Axe is a molecular biologist. He did his PhD work at Cambridge, and he wrote a book uh, called Undeniable, How Biology Confirms Our Intuition That Life Is Designed. And some of it's technical, but he's going through kind of looking at protein synthesis and looking at the arguments of science just to make the case to say, hey, look, the evidence actually points to the reality of a designer. So we have this in the bookstall afterwards. I have two copies to give away afterwards. We have, they're also on sale at the bookstall. If you want to think more about that, I would commend to you Douglas Axe's book, Undeniable. The point is, is that Genesis 1-1 begins with this idea that in the beginning, God, and every person will either accept or deny that statement. There's no middle ground. Either in the beginning, God, or in the beginning, there was not God. And this is all chance and accident. So if God is good, if Moses is right, if Genesis 1 is right, if God is good, if God's heart is, is intent, his, his, his aim and his, his, his longing is to to provide what's good for us, then a logical question for us then is, why would anyone reject this God? That's a good question. In verse four, chapter one, verse four, it says that God saw that it was good. And then that, that's repeated all through chapter one. God saw that it was good. And God has the right to declare what is good because he's the creator. But, but with that in mind, if we skip forward to chapter three, verse six, and we'll go into more detail when we get to chapter three, but in chapter three, verse six, there's a, there's a parallel statement that I think Moses is meant for us to put them side by side. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Then we get to chapter three, verse six, it says, then the woman saw that the tree was good. Well, who's right? God had warned Adam and Eve that the, don't eat from that tree the knowledge of good and evil. He says, that's good for you. My rule over your life is for your good. I'm intent on giving you good. This is good for you. I want what's good for you. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, the woman says, hmm, I think this is good. I'm sure, I'm sure that God's right. I want this. This looks really, this looks really delicious. This looks, the idea of me being in charge, I like that. Maybe God's not right. Maybe, maybe this is good. 
the reason that humanity suppresses the obvious and clear truth that all of creation is shouting today that there is a God, the reason that humanity suppresses that is that we can decide for ourselves what is good. The reason that an atheistic Darwinian evolution as a theory is so appealing to so many people is because it it presents a world where there is no God and where we are God and we can determine what's right and wrong, where we can decide what's good for ourselves. And friends, like Adam and Eve, we are born into this world wanting self-rule. We want to do what we want when we want. This rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. Sin promises us life but it lies to us. It makes the world that we live in uninhabitable, miserable. Sin leaves us at odds with God, our creator. It leads us in conflict with each other. It leads, sin leads to death. Sin leads to hell. And friends, being at odds with God, having your creator opposed to you is not good. It's not a laughing matter. It is the biggest problem that you or I or any human being will ever face. And so as a solution to this problem, people will, some people will say, you know what? I don't care. I'm digging my heels in. There is no God. And they, they say, press the truth of God, about God. Others will turn to religious, other religions that have a, a, a to-do list of good works in order to earn God's favor. But whatever solution that man comes up with, there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to fix the problem. Because as long as the stain of sin remains on our record, we're in trouble with a holy God. So is there any hope? What's the hope? The, the answer that Christianity gives is Jesus. He is our hope. Remember John chapter one, verses one through three. John links Jesus to creation. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the eternal word that created all things and made them for our good. And then how did we respond to this good God? We thumbed our noses at him and said, no, thank you. I would rather decide for myself what is right and wrong, what is good for me. And we rejected God's good word. God had every right to then just say, forget you then. But because God is merciful and gracious, John 1.14 says, and the word that we rejected became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the son of God, took on flesh and entered into a dark world because of our sin, a world that was broken because of our sin. And on the cross, a sinless Jesus died for guilty sinners like you and me in our place as our substitute. When he died on the cross, we're actually told in Mark's gospel that that there was darkness over the land for three hours. Kind of an echo of Genesis 1-2. Jesus came into this dark world. He took on himself our sin, the sin of anyone who had turned from their sin and trust in Jesus and on the third day, Jesus rose triumphant from the, from the dead so that sinners like you and me who once rejected him could now have life in his name, have life in Jesus Christ. This is the grace of God, undeserved. This is the God who loves you, friends. 
who came to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from our folly, to rescue us from death. And for those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, God makes them new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So friends, I, I, I urge you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, today, turn away from your sin. Turn away from, from your self-reliance that says, I can do this on my own, I'm a good enough person. Turn away from that, abandon that, and turn and trust in Christ and in him alone. And he will make you a new creation today. Church, there are, there are gonna be days when even as a new creation in Christ, there are gonna be days that this side of heaven are hard to live in because we still, even as a new creation, we still live, as, we still live in a world that is broken because of sin. We feel and hear the groans of creation. And there are, there are days in this life that may even feel uninhabitable. I can't keep going, it's such a mess. But friends, our hope is in Jesus. And our hope is not in vain. Just as God created the heavens and the earth and then prepared a good land for his people to dwell in, even now he's doing it again. Even now as we wait, he's doing it again. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, one through three? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Praise God. Friends, our God is the creator of all things and because of his mercy and grace, he is also the re-creator of all things. Jesus is coming again and he will, when he comes again, he will make all things new. And while we wait, he'll help us. And while we wait, we have a job to do, to love one another, to love our God above all things, to love a world that is opposed to God, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to trust in him. May God help us to do that together as a church family. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks and praise today as our creator. When we think about the vastness of creation, how big you are. Lord, we are humbled today that you are mindful of us. That 2,000 years ago in, 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 this, in, in Christ, you, Jesus took on flesh for our salvation. You were mindful of the lowly. And so, Father, we pray that we would not stiff arm you or push you away or harden our hearts against you, but that we would trust in you and worship you alone. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.